We have one update to make that, um, I, so I think there has been a change. We are accepting food items for the Thanksgiving basket. So as you can imagine, it's been a pretty busy weekend. So we are accepting food items for the Thanksgiving basket. So uh, I think there's a list out in the foyer. Certainly if you want to bring the dish towels, you can do that. So, yeah. I'm being told to do something. Turn it. Test, test. Much better, huh? All right. Somehow it got turned to mute. I was using it earlier, and it, I didn't... So, all right. So did you hear me about the Thanksgiving baskets? Uh, okay, you can bring food items after all. Um, that, so that's been, a, been an update there. If you want to bring the dish towels and the potholders, I'm, I'm sure you can certainly bring them as well. Uh, but we are accepting food items for that, uh, too. Uh, we're continuing on in our series on the blessings. Being thankful for the blessings, the spiritual blessings that we receive from God. Um, and I think we, we already have them. We have these blessings. And now it's just to take some time before Thanksgiving to recognize them, to see them with new eyes, to recognize what we have and being grateful for these things. Uh, so this week, I want us to look at the blessing of the local church, uh, the spiritual blessing of the local church. I want to start by reading you. Uh, so I don't know if you know this, our, our church has two books uh, so um, one of them uh, was written about 50 years ago. Uh, they hired a, an historian to do this. And this is the way he starts it. And I think it's pretty helpful for us today. The historian writes this. There was an unusual commotion one April day on the banks of the Merrimack. No, it had nothing to do with the very unpopular king, George III. So I think way back to the 1700s, 1760s. But a great deal to do with the king of kings, who was on that day gaining some new servants for his eternal kingdom. They were pledging their lives to the Lord Jesus in the solemn act of immersion, baptism. They were giving themselves to him in the Merrimack. I don't think I'd want to be baptized in the Merrimack today, but back then it was a lot cleaner. As he had done for them in the Jordan when John the Baptist plunged him beneath the water. Leading the candidates into the river was the handsome and dignified young Baptist preacher, Hezekiah Smith, a stalwart man of God, as we shall have occasion to see. The first person of the eight he led into the river was a Mary Bailey, subsequently the mother of the first president of Waterville, now Colby College. It was the first baptismal service in the history of what is today one of New England's outstanding Baptist churches, that is the First Baptist Church of Haverhill, Massachusetts. Uh, so think of that. Well over 250 years ago, this fiery Baptist preacher by the name of Hezekiah was preaching over at uh, First Parish, saying that you needed to have a personal relationship with Jesus, that you needed to personally repent, come into faith in Christ, and grow in the knowledge of Him as a new creation. And they kicked him out. <laughs> they kicked him out of church. So he kept preaching. Uh, and eventually there was a group of believers that were gathering together. And they were now saved. They wanted to be baptized. He took them down to the Merrimack and baptized them. And said, let's get together and start a church. They started meeting in somebody's home. And that was the beginning of this congregation. Uh, think about that. That's before Facebook. <laughs> uh, before the internet. Uh, before Airplanes, television, automobiles, electricity. Well, I don't know. When's electricity really start? So that one, have to, I'd have to check. This is way back in the very beginning. Before the United States of America, 
was the United States of America. Remember, that's 1776. So even before that, there's a group of Christians who are gathering to study the scriptures, to hear from the word, to pray to the living God, and to get that message out there. Now here we are, 250-something years later, and thousands and thousands have been saved by God's grace through faith because of the ministry of this church as the means that God has used to bring them to faith, to have been baptized. Missionaries have been sent all over the world. Dozens and dozens of churches have been planted through the ministry of this church, many of them still right here in town. Uh, And God, I believe, will keep this church until the day of his return. That's my hope and my prayer. Such is the, the blessing of the ministry of the local church. I want us to look at a number of different passages this morning. So if you look in your bulletin, uh, you'll see that I'm I'm actually going to kind of poke around. I don't typically do that. Usually I like to camp in one specific passage of Scripture. Uh, But because of the nature of the topic here, talking about the church, I want to look at three different things as we think about the spiritual blessing of the church that we get to enjoy. That this this, uh, unbroken, continued line all the way up until today of a group of Christians right here in the city of Haverhill meeting to worship the Lord and now still meeting here on Sunday morning. So first, I want us to look here at Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. The local church is a spiritual blessing for Christians. This is what we read in Hebrews 10. It'll be up on the screen. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church gathers to encourage one another. Gathers to encourage one another. He starts off, verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession. Uh, What's the confession uh, that he's talking about here? The confession is the gospel. Uh, It's the message of Christ's death in our place. On the cross and his triumphal resurrection from the dead. So that those who put their faith in him, they gain a relationship with him, they reconciled relationship with him. Their sins are forgiven and they're given the promise of eternal life. That's our confession as Christians. That's what we believe. And he's saying here, hold on to that. Uh, don't let go of that. Uh, don't lose hope in that. Stay firm in the confession. Now, he knows that God is sovereign and in control, and he's going to sort of protect God's people. Uh, They're never going to sort of walk away from it. Those who genuinely believe will be faithful to the end. But God uses different means to protect his people and to preserve them for his kingdom. And one of the means that God uses is warnings. (laughs) Warnings like the one we just read. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon who said, uh, you know that if you're walking near a cliff with your young kid, say he's five years old, you know he's not going to fall off the edge. How do you know that? Because you're going to tell him, don't go off the edge. (laughs) And if he even comes near it, you're going to grab his hand and pull him close. In the same way, God says to us, be careful, hold on to this confession, don't lose hope. And one of the ways he keeps us, he preserves us as his people are by these very warnings. Those people who believe, who are holding fast to this confession, he says in verse 24, let us together consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let's encourage one another. Let's push each other on to continue to live out the Christian life. We're saved by God's grace and by, his, by faith in Christ alone. But we live out the faith. 
We, we do the commands, the verbs of Scripture to love one another, to fight the good fight, to wrestle against the flesh, to continue on serving, to, to continue to love one another. We're called here now to press, to push each other, stir each other up into that. And to do so, verse 25, here's the focus of this section, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Uh, the church is the, the gathered people of God. Actually, the, the word church, ekklesia, the Greek word, uh, literally means called out ones. That's sort of the background of the, two, of the word. But it came to be used as an assembly, a congregation. It, it wasn't a, a spiritual word. It wasn't a religious word. It was just a word. Uh, it was an assembly. And that's the word that the scriptures use to define the gathering of God's people. You are the ekklesia. You are the assembly. You are God's people who come together. That's why I think it's kind of funny when people say, I'm the church, no matter where I go, no matter, whether, regardless of where I'm a member or whether I'm a member of a church. Uh, that makes no sense. <laughs> you can't be an assembly. You're an individual. Uh, to be part of a congregation means that you're committed to a group, to a family. Now, don't get misunderstand me. Uh, the way the theologians of the past have talked about it is when Christians come together, that's the church gathered. And then when we're done and we head out these doors, as we will, will be the church scattered. So we're still the people of God who come together. But friends, it's essential that we do this with one another. Uh, interesting, he says, as is the habit of some. Uh, so the idea of uh, being inconsistent in attending church, that goes back a long, long way. <laughs> that goes back about 2,000 years. That's nothing new. But he's recognizing the importance, friends, of us coming together, as he says, as you await the day. Uh, what is the day? It's the big day. It's not just uh, your day of passing from this world, my day of passing, but the big day, the day of Christ's return. As we are waiting for that day, let's just keep, keep meeting, keep encouraging to one another, uh, keep meeting together. And as I said, as we're part of an unbroken chain for 250-something years, how neat is that? As I mentioned, friends, we have the privilege of the blessing of the church. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, I don't need to be part of a church in order to be a Christian. To which my response is, absolutely right. Definitely. To be a Christian means to put your faith in Jesus and to follow him. So, no question about that. But why would you then not want to take advantage of this great spiritual blessing that God has given us? Uh, he's given us this, this great way of preserving and maturing in the faith. Why would we not want to take advantage of that? Why would we not want to commit to being together? I think of all the blessings that you get from a local church. One is fellowship, as I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, we need that. Uh, we're, we're social creatures. Uh, we need to be with one another, to hug one another, to continue to press, uh, to encourage one another to press on in the faith. Uh, now, some of you guys are introverts. And uh, no worries. I am, I am I, let's, see, let's put it this way. I was perhaps the most introverted person you would have ever met. Uh, not many people here knew me back from middle school, high school, but if you, if you did, you could vouch for me that I would be one of the most introverted people you could meet. If there was a person who could live by himself on an island and, not, and be completely content about it, I might be that person. All right, So that's how introverted I could be. But I know that God has more wisdom than me. And he knows that God's people need to be together. They need to depend upon one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to worship together. We need the accountability 
of being together, friends. Uh, This is a blessing worth dying for. In fact, if you look at church history for 2,000 years, it's exactly what's happened. People have died for this privilege to meet together. In the earliest church, of course, they met in the catacombs, you know, the tombs under the ground because it was illegal for Christians to meet together. But even today, in modern-day China, where it's illegal to be a Christian outside of the state church, uh, people do it all the time and break the law. Here, it was, I was interested to learn a little bit about China. Uh, by Lord willing, I'm going to be going there coming, this coming May. Uh, so China, if you don't know, has what's called the Three Self uh, Church. That's the government sort of sponsored church. And Christianity is growing rapidly, even in the Three Self Church. So by, in 2004, there were 18 million uh, Christians attending the Three Self Church. Which is a lot, considering China for a long time was not open to the gospel at all. I mean, there were no Christians in China for hundreds and hundreds of years. But from 2004 to 2016, it jumped from 18 million to 38 million. It grew that quickly. So now you have 38 million people who are in the established church there, uh, state-sponsored church. And that, with that sort of estimated growth uh, this year, it's expected that there are about 43.5 million Christians in the three self church in China, one country alone, and that's not including children under 18 because they don't they don't allow children under 18 to get baptized, so they don't count them in sort of the membership role. Now you take the house church movement. Uh, so problems with the government, stated you know sponsored church, uh, some compromises and so forth. So what Christians do is say we're going to meet illegally um, at the risk of losing our lives. Right now, in the house church movement, it's estimated that there are two to four times as many people. In 2006, the last estimate was 110 million people in China, part of the house church movement, not part of the three self. And they estimate today, again, it's hard to sort of figure this out because because it's illegal there, that there are 235 million Christians meeting underground in house churches, willing to risk their lives for the privilege of the spiritual blessing of the local church. Do not forsake the gathering together of yourselves. Stir one another to love and good works. Can you be a Christian by yourselves? Of course you can. But why not take full advantage of the blessing of being gathered with God's people as the church? Look at, uh, secondly, uh, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14. The church disciples us to go deeper in our faith. The church disciples us to go deeper in our faith. This is one of the, uh, I think, one of the most important passages for pastors to remember. So we see this in verse 11. And he, and the he there, refers to God, uh, God the Father. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. And we're not going to focus on those different types of leaders. But notice it's God himself that gives these leaders to the church. But then finally, the shepherds and teachers, and if you look at the the Greek grammar, those are probably one in the same category, shepherds and teachers, pastors and teachers of the church, God gives them to the local church for what reason? Look at verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And who are the saints? Uh, Not sort of the great men and women of old, uh, but every Christian. So in the Bible, this is undisputed in biblical scholarship, by the way. doesn't matter what tradition you're from. The word saints in Scripture always refers to all Christians. That's what it's referring to. Uh, so who are the saints? You are. Each of us are. And the role of these church leaders is to do what? To equip the saints to do the work of ministry. 
I think one of the one of the biggest mistakes perhaps we've made, and particularly in, in Western churches and maybe starting in England, is to call the pastor a minister. Well, yeah, he is a minister, that's true, but he's one among the entire church. That every member of a church is a minister who's called to be equipped by the pastor to do ministry. Uh, to what end? For the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, until we attain unity. So that we would mature in the faith and mature in a spirit of unity. And, as he says, verse 13, and with a knowledge of the Son of God. That we might know Christ more. So, if my job as a pastor has been successful when I finally retire or die or whatever happens. Um, that means you, as a church family, love one another better <laughs> and know Christ more. If that's the case... I've done a good job as a pastor. If it's not, then I failed you guys. Uh, The pastor's not the hired gun who does ministry in the place of people. He's the one who helps the church mature. And he describes these images of uh, growing up, of maturing into manhood, uh, of of like a reed that's tossed back and forth being solid instead, that the church can stand firm. And he mentions specifically against things like false teaching, you know, prosperity gospel or uh, legalism or antinomianism, which means uh, sort of there's no uh, rules to the Christian life. You just live in fully in sin. To, to warn people about these dangers so that people stand firm in the faith. That's the role of a pastor. Friends, one of the reasons we come to a local church, one of the blessings is of a local church is to be discipled. Uh, to, to go deeper. You know, I think it takes, in a sense, a, a certain level of humility to be part of a church. I know everyone here is part of a church. You're here. Well, you're here, at least attending a church, so that's a good thing. Um, but I often talk to people who are not, and this isn't true of everyone who's not, but people say, you know what, I, people, nobody understands me. That's why I'm not part of a church. Or I know more about the Bible than anyone else, so why would I attend a church? Or I don't need anybody else. I'm doing fine on my own. Or all I have to do is step out into nature, and I get all of the worship I need. And... Underneath that, friends, is a certain level of autonomy, of of sort of conceit. Uh, I I don't need anybody else. I'm good on my own. And to be part of a church, then, is a sort of a a statement of humility. I am dependent. I can't do this alone. I need the gifts and the talents and the abilities of other Christians. I need those to help build me up. I'm not okay without them. You know, I need the advice of, of older Older husbands who have been married for 50 years to give me some wisdom about how to keep my marriage nice and healthy and strong. I need to listen to to, to mothers who have raised godly kids who are now walking with the Lord and godly grandkids and find out the secret of how to do that. (laughs) I I need to watch people who have suffered through cancer, through chemo, have gotten through that and have watched it return and are still walking with the Lord. How do they do that? How do they go through that suffering and and still trust in him? There's a certain level of humility, of recognition. Really, it's honesty, a realization of our place that we need other people. We need help. And I I would just say about our our own church here, um, I've been personally immeasurably helped uh, by First Baptist Church. Uh, My Christian life in so many ways is parallel to this church. So I became a Christian, a follower of Christ personally when I was 14 years of age. And the first church that I became a member of, not, not attended, we attended some other ones, but was this one. I was baptized in this church, got married in this church. 
Um, I preached my first sermon in this church. Uh, this has been home. And it's been a challenge at the same time. It's been a challenge in all different ways, but one is watching people I know and love pass away. Yeah, that's one of the things. I, a part of me, I, I'll let you in a little secret. Part of me at times wants to leave First Baptist simply so that I don't have to watch these people I've known and loved my whole life hit the latter stages of life and pass away. It's a selfish thing on me. I don't want to have to sit by the bedside of Muriel French and talk about her dying faith and tomorrow do her committal service. I'd rather just move on and go live out in California and not have to think about those things. But I need that. I need to watch people live and finish well and be part of this, even as I seek to disciple others. There's a level of good helpful humility that comes with saying, I need the the teaching of a pastor. Um, I've been part of a a, a group of pastors that pray here in Haverhill. Uh, We pray every Tuesday morning. Uh, Common Ground Ministry sort of runs it. It's a group of about, I think if everybody came, probably a dozen of us. Uh, And I would just tell you, these guys love their churches. They love their church members. These 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 are men who take very seriously the calling to shepherd and care for people. Um, and, and their hearts break when their people in their congregation's hearts break. Uh, when they're going through suffering and difficulties, their hearts rejoice when they see successes in the churches. Um, really get an insight in the heart of pastors and, and watching them. Uh, without the local church, there's no one there to teach. But not only that, we depend upon one another. Let's go deeper in your faith. Uh, this is where we get equipped. If you're not part of a church, uh, in a sense, you're, you're going at the Christian life Naked. <laughs> uh, you don't have the equipment. Uh, you, you need to be part of a body with all of its differences because that's where you get equipment. Uh, you know, this idea of being equipped. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of the Marines. <laughs> you know, the Marines have all, all their equipment. I got a picture of a Marine. You know, fully equipped. That's got to be the most frightening scene for any other country that we're not at, we're at odds with, right there, right? A fully equipped, well trained Marine. Uh, I was thinking about what does it actually take uh, to equip a Marine? So I read an article uh, from CNBC from 2002. Uh, They said, here's the breakdown. A helmet costs $322. A uniform costs $67.65. Body armor, $1,620. Nuclear, biological, and chemical gear, $341.75. In 2002, these prices have gone up, I'm sure. Walkie-talkie, $578. Boots, $105. An M16 rifle, $586, fully equipped rucksack, $1,031.15, three square meals a day, $19.25, uh, standard pay, $50.59, $50.59 a day, combat pay, $5 a day in addition. Uh, Anderson total retail value is $4,726.39, but that's flawed. Uh, the least important part of a re- really is of a soldier, a sailor, airman, uh, or woman is the equipment, helmets and boots. Uh, th- there's other things um, like airplanes, tanks, and things like that that get even more expensive. The real costs are the personnel costs. We're talking about training. We're talking about housing. We're talking about dependent care for families, daycare for children. We're talking about health care, which is a huge issue. Uh, let's look at recruiting alone. This year, recruiting one Marine costs $6,539, including advertising, college fund, and enlistment bonuses. Train that Marine, and you add $1,614, including uniform gear, laundry, and chow. 
Then give that recruit some real classroom learning and tackle an additional 301. Remember, you haven't paid him yet. Pay allowance, clothing, moving expenses, add another 19,000. 973, give him some ammo, $787. Provide him with the staff of drill sergeants, teachers, and support staff. You're up to 15,674. Total value now is 44,887. But still, you're way off in what it takes to equip Marine. Uh, they have extraordinary technical abilities. The majority of people are not on the front line. They're coming off of the, uh, not, not on the front line, coming off beaches with rifles. They're behind the scenes, running equipment. They're the people running unmanned aerial vehicles like the Predator. Old-fashioned entrymen are, in, in fact, one of the rarest commodities in today's military. Uh, now there's plenty with PhDs, highly specialized officers. What kind of education? Last year, the cost of educating one officer likely specialized in science and engineering from the U.S. Military Academy, $340,000. But let's say that officer likes to fly. Put him in a $19 million F-16 fighter. <laughs> so what's the overall cost of sending a soldier to defend our freedom? Well, the writer says, that was my assignment, and after spending two weeks trying to pry that number out of the U.S. military, our crack team of investigative journalists in the Washington Bureau came up with the following answer. It's simply not a knowable number. <laughs> It's priceless. If that's what it takes to put one Marine on the field. Uh, think of friends, if you're living the Christian life, what does it take to equip you to be faithful to the Lord to the end, to fight the good fight of the faith? Uh, if you're out there by yourself, without a church family, uh, you're in grave danger. You're alone and naked. In fact, I've heard it said, I think it's John, said, uh, John Stott said, the idea of a Christian who's not part of a church in the first century is a ghastly idea. It wouldn't even cross your mind. Uh, the need of a church to grow, to mature, to be discipled. And then thirdly, the church is on mission to reach the world. Acts 4, 32 to 34. Uh, the church is on mission to reach the world. And uh, one of the things that we love about being part of our denomination is uh, it's all about the local church. It's all about equipping and strengthening local churches. Uh, we see in the book of Acts, the, the whole process of the book of Acts after the resurrection of Jesus is as goes the spread of the gospel, so goes new churches who pop up everywhere. Uh, so that's what happens as, as, as the gospel is preached. Somebody comes to faith. Uh, that person begins to share with other people. Other people come to faith. A group gathers together and they become a church and you move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So looking here at Acts 4.32. Uh, going on to verse 34, we read now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Uh, so this is no longer just the leaders, just the apostles here, but the whole church family. Uh, in this beginning stages of the church, they're of one heart and soul. Uh, notice it says here that uh, no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. Uh, from time to time, somebody would actually sell their property and give it to the ministry of the local church so that the mission could continue. And friends, I would just say, your, your generosity and your regular tithing uh, to, the, to the church, that's not a little side issue <laughs> for the church. That's front and center, part of the mission. Uh, for one, it shows our love for one another, uh, as it did here. Uh, what a witness that was to the world that's watching. That those who are rich and wealthy in the congregation are willing to make great sacrifices to help those who are in need and to make sure that the gospel begins to spread. Uh, what did Jesus say? It is by your love that all men will know that you are my disciples. The way we treat one another is essential part is an essential part of the ministry, the mission of the church. Verse 33 says, with great power, 
the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they weren't just sitting comfortably, enjoying the fellowship and friendship of a church. They were still hitting the streets and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, seeking to add to the number of those who were saved and to see new churches pop up. And I love what he says at the end of 34, and great grace was upon them all. Presence of God with them. It's one of the things, this is how God's mission to reach the world works. Uh, it's church-centered. Uh, somebody goes, missionary goes to a place, like we have missionaries out there, Ecuador, Nepal, uh, Senegal, all over, all over the world, and they share the good news, and by God's grace and His timing, they lead someone to faith. That person comes to faith, they begin to disciple him or her. And then in time, another person comes. And then over a short period of time, maybe a long period of time, you have a dozen. And so what does the missionary do? He gets those dozen people to meet together. And says, this is what we do when we meet together. We study the Bible. We pray together. We worship. And then we go back out those doors and start sharing the good news again. And then, Lord willing, a good missionary leaves. Leaves them on their own and heads out to the next place. And then as new people come to faith, uh, they come, start a new church, and they start reaching people in their city and sending out missionaries to other places. And eventually this goes out to the ends of the earth. Friends, that's the call in Scripture. That's what we're, as, as Christians, that's how we reach the world. We reach it, not just one individual at a time, but one community at a time. Uh, we are, I've mentioned this before, but I just want to re-emphasize it again. Re-emphasize it again. We are in a mission field right here in New England. That's one of the great things about having a church right here. Uh, we don't actually have to go far to say we're in the mission field. Less than 4% of people in New England go to an evangelical church. Um, most people are here are secular. Um, they don't, if they believe in God, it's sort of just a general idea. Um, so in order to be on the mission field, what you need to do is open up those doors behind you and walk out. <laughs> We're right here, right now. And I think, friends, I, I, I've said this before, but I think that God is doing something very powerful and unique in New England right here and right now. And the neat thing is, the way he's doing it is through churches. It's not some great evangelist that we bring in, and thank God for them, to run some huge, big assembly rally uh, down at uh, the Songa Center or the Boston, uh, TD Bank North Garden or something like that. That's not, that's not the way he's working. How is he working? He's working through individual local churches who are planting new local churches who are then reaching these, these new cities. Uh, there was this one moment during the annual meeting where uh, one of the brothers that was preaching gave the pastors an opportunity to say, look, if you feel, feel like this is the time, this is the time to really seek revival and to pour our hearts out to God, just come forward and just come forward and just kneel here in the front. And I have a picture here. And almost every pastor did that. <laughs> uh, almost every pastor said, yes, this is what we long for. This is what we're praying for. This is what we want. Uh, friends, I, I hope that we as a church uh, kind of re-engage the mission that God has set us on. Uh, as I mentioned, this church started in a house with a group of people meeting to pray meeting to worship, and seeking to reach our city. Uh, over the years, it's gone up and down. I think there have been close to 1,000 members at one point, and then lower and higher and all that, but it's been faithful to continue to minister here. Um, and was respond this church was responsible for planting dozens. 
And I hope we get back to that as a church. Uh, as I was reading devotionally this morning, I was in Revelation chapter 2. And this struck out to me for our church. Uh, not because we're... Listen, I'm not, I don't mean this in a critical way for us. But, uh, but this hit me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Maybe I could be as bold to say, Haverhill. Write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands represent the churches. Jesus says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. That's true, friends. Uh, you know, we, we're able to provide uh, an army of volunteers. Well, it wasn't a small army of volunteers for an event. And it was amazing and really blessed a lot of other people. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So we do do loving church discipline here. Uh, we do try to be careful to teach sound doctrine and to recognize what is false teaching and are cautious about that. Verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently. 253 years is a long time. <laughs> and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. I mean, what a statement that is to this church. If you read, if you just stopped there, you'd say, this church gets an A+. <laughs> this is one of the best churches uh, you'll, you'll ever see. But he comes to verse 4. And again, I don't mean this in a, in a critical way, but it's a good reminder, let's say, to us. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. That love to reach our city. That love to plant new churches. That love to send missionaries around the world. We sent, we sent one of the, we supported one of the first missionaries in the modern church movement, Adoniram Judson, to Burma. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let that be a reminder to us to be a church on mission. We are here, yes, to encourage and to disciple one another, but we're also here to be a church on mission, reaching our city, reaching New England for the gospel, and looking forward to that day, the day of Christ's return. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, even as we have this table set behind me, reminding us of the wonderful blessings we're going to enjoy on Thanksgiving and following that on Christmas, Lord willing. The blessing of fellowship and friendship with, with our extended family who maybe were coming from out of town or will be traveling out of town to visit them. Of friends that we'll get together with. Of the blessing, Lord, of a big, full meal with every vegetable you can imagine, and desserts galore, um, the blessing of sitting down afterwards and relaxing on a recliner, watching football, whatever we might do. Help us to recognize the spiritual blessings, Lord, that we have. And this Sunday, Lord, as we think about the blessing of the local church, uh, thank you that we get to do this together. Uh, Lord, help us not to forsake the gathering together of, of ourselves, as is the habit of son, some, uh, but to continue to encourage one another as we see this day approaching.
But Lord, we do pray too as a church, would be a church on mission, uh, would be a church that is about reaching the world for Jesus, whether that's about reaching our next door neighbors and inviting them to come, to hear the good news and to see what Christian community looks like, or whether that be about planting new churches right here in New England, and there are a number of places, Lord, where there is no evangelical presence whatsoever and are in desperate need of a group of believers who are committed to that town or that city. And let us be a church that continues to send missionaries around the world, especially to places that have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Continue to be with us. And even as we turn our attention, Lord, to sing your praises and then to enjoy communion together, let it be truly an act of worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.